Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you. Jesus, you are our King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for your presence in this place this day. We thank you for opening the eyes of our understanding that we may see who we are in Christ like never before. Bless you, Holy Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's make our confession. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Spirit and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. There are some tremendous truths that the Bible has identified for us. Verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Then he starts talking about the faith of certain people. Verse 6, he says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. One translation, well, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase, says of this verse 10, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It says that Abraham was a citizen of heaven, not this world. A citizen of heaven. Folks, there are some things that have happened in these previous years, specifically in 2020, that has changed the church and changed people in a tremendous and drastic way. The lockdown because of the pandemic began um, an example or a time of what we might call soft persecution or indirect persecution against the church. There, you, you remember back to the things that were going on. They classified gambling casinos as, as essential and therefore able to keep open. But church was deemed non-essential. There have been some tremendous um, negative tremendously negative things that have happened in the church since 2020. It changed people's attitude about the church. It changed people's church attendance. It changed their giving. It, and it has become what many in government leadership are calling a model for things that they intend to bring upon the people. And it's not just here in America that these things have happened. It's happened all over the world. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He dwelt here on this earth, but he was not of this earth. Now, the Bible tells us a lot of things about Abraham that we want to look at in just a moment. But Jesus talked about these same things looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Or we could say it that they, the things that he talked about identified for us what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. 
Jesus said, lay, up not, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where the thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, that there will be your heart also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If, dark, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, folks, realize that Jesus is talking about where our heart is. He says our heart is where our treasure is. Now, it would seem to be the other way around. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure goes. But the Bible is identifying, Jesus is identifying that spiritual awareness, spiritual condition is changed or affected by the actions that we take. Jesus goes further and talks about not being anxious. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Hold on a second, I lost it. Back to verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles see. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Folks, the Bible indicates to us that God's plan and his purpose, his desire, is for us to live not according to this world, but to live according to the, the citizenship that we have in heaven because of the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of his precious blood. The making us, making of us into righteousness because of the sin that he took upon himself. The Bible talks about the right relationship of money. Is having a lot to do with our spiritual understanding, a lot to do with our spiritual welfare. It has a lot to do with our spiritual identification. There is a right relationship with money, and if there's a right relationship with money, there's a wrong relationship with money. Jesus is talking about being citizens of heaven by the actions that we take and the thing that he identifies is not the only thing I'm sure but the first and foremost thing that he identifies concerning our actions is our relationship with money there's a, a story in Matthew and uh, excuse me Mark chapter 10 talking about the rich young ruler that I want to bring to your attention Mark chapter 10 verse 17 and when he was gone forth out of the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? 
There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy mother and father. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Folks, I would suggest that the possessions had him. And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. Now, folks, if the disciples were this poor, ragtag bunch of nobodies and do-nothings, then that would have been the perfect time for them to pat themselves on the back and say, Yep, you got to be like us. Not enough money to get by. No skills, no ability to bring ourselves into finances. But they were astonished at, Je- at Jesus' words. Again, Jesus said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answering again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house and brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. This rich young ruler was controlled by his possessions. But folks, notice what Jesus said or what it says about Jesus. It said Jesus looked at the rich young ruler before he ever made any changes in his life. He looked at him because of his willingness to keep the word of the commandments of God. And Jesus loved him. Now what Jesus offered him is very similar to the things that it tells us about what he offered Peter and John. Jesus is offering this rich young ruler a chance to be in the inner circle. Now, when Jesus said, there's one thing that you lack, notice that the guy wanted the right thing. He wanted to inherit eternal life. Now, we don't necessarily know what what he meant by eternal life, if he had a right understanding of that or not. But his heart seems to be in the right place, at least. He comes running up to Jesus. He's not coming to Jesus with some kind of proud or arrogant or confident air about him. He doesn't send his servants ahead to stop Jesus so that he can casually walk up to him. He comes running to Jesus. He recognizes the things that he's seen of Jesus or the things that he heard of him. He recognizes that that identifies a position with God that he would consider worthy of asking his question about inheriting eternal life. No pride about this guy. He comes to him and falls down before him and asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said there's one thing that he lacks. 
Now, folks, if you get to the place with God, there's only one thing that's missing. That's pretty good. Jesus said, one thing you lack. And then he told him what to do to get the thing that he lacked. He said, sell what you have and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. The thing that he lacks is treasure in heaven. Now when Jesus gives him the answer to how to get treasure in heaven, the man resists and he goes away greed. He misses out on the opportunity to have, to experience, possess eternal life, which seems to be the foremost thing in his life. It seems to be the most important thing. At least it's the thing that he comes to Jesus to ask about. But he's unwilling to part with his possessions. He's unwilling to do away with some of the abundance that he's experienced because of the wrong relationship he has with money. Now in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the story of the sower sowing the word and his disciples come to him afterwards and ask him about it. And Jesus explains to them, Mark chapter 4 verse 15, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Notice one of the things that causes the thorny ground not to produce is the deceitfulness of riches. Folks, money will lie to you. Now the disciples we saw in Mark chapter 10 do not understand what Jesus is saying about money. And when Jesus says that rich people can't enter into the kingdom of God, that's when their astonishment grows out of measure. They're expecting the blessing of Abraham, the covenant blessing of Abraham, to manifest in everybody that cares about God. They recognize the commandments that the keeping of brings you into a place of wealth and riches. When they say, who then can be saved? They're identifying and revealing the accepted fact, the accepted truth of God wanting his people to be rich, of God providing for his people to bring them into wealth. So when Jesus starts talking about the difficulty for a rich man to enter into heaven or the kingdom of God, that blows their minds. That's the, the reason that they start asking things like, well, who then can be saved? Is the gospel a gospel to the poor? Only to the poor? They don't know how to reconcile this. But there is a deceitfulness of riches that the Bible tells us, that Jesus tells us, that will resist and detour and will abort God's plan for your life. The deceitfulness of riches tells us, identifies for us, that money will lie to you. Now, what does money, how does money lie to you? Money will lie to you to indicate that it is the most important thing in life. Now, the Bible says in, in Proverbs 
that wisdom is the principal thing. With all you're getting, get understanding. So a part of the right place of money, the right relationship with money, is to recognize the importance and the place that money holds in our lives. I don't want to say that it's not important because it is. Everybody needs money. Everybody requires money to live their lives. But the right relationship with money is to recognize that money is a tool. It's not something to be loved. It's not something to be pursued. It's something to expect as a result of putting first and foremost the kingdom of God, seeking his kingdom and seeking his righteousness. Because in that case, all these things shall be added to us. Now there's a, a verse of scripture in, um, I think it's Matthew chapter 22, that tells us about Jesus rebuking the disciples, the Pharisees rather, rebuking the Pharisees. It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. He tells the Pharisees, apparently the Pharisees have stumbled on to their understanding of the promise of God and the riches of God. And they go into such detail as to pay tithes or give a tenth of the spices that they have. Folks, can you imagine taking your cinnamon jar and dividing it in tenths to give God one-tenth of your cinnamon or your salt or your pepper or whatever. Jesus makes the point that the Pharisees who are hypocrites go to all this trouble and all this detail just so that they can be, would be able to say that they tithe on everything that they have. But they ignore other most more important issues and areas of the Christian life. It's interesting to me also that he talks to the Pharisees about paying tithes. Paying indicates that there's a debt or an obligation that they have. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3. To honor the Lord with the first fruits of our, with the first fruits and the tent of all of our possessions. Honor, not pay. It's not a debt that's owed as such. It's a place of a relationship with God that we enter into willingly and carry out because of God's great love for us. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 11. Paul, well, the author of the book of Hebrews, I think it's Paul. But Paul identifies that Abraham was looking for something beyond this natural realm. And it talks about when God first appeared to Abraham when he was 75. 75 years old, he told him to leave his father's possessions and go to a land that he sends him to. And so he left behind everything that would have been in his inheritance. We don't know anything about what that would be, whether it was a lot or whether it was a little. But he believed God and was willing to leave it. And so he went to where God had for him. And in Genesis chapter 14, it tells us that Abraham waged war against some enemy kings 
that had taken his nephew Lot and his families, taken them captive. He gathers the people in his household that were born in his household, 316. Now, folks, that's a big staff, 316 people he takes to war. And he defeats these enemy kings. And it says in verse 17, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of the king, king, we'll call him King Cheddar, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into his hand. And he gave them tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe, latch, shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abraham rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which were with me, Anor, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And folks, this is the first time that tithing is ever mentioned in the Bible. And it's not something that God commanded. The reason that tithing is such an important thing is because it shows your heart. It shows what kingdom you belong to. Now there are things in this world that place themselves as hindrances or obstacles to carrying out the plan and purpose of God. We all start off at the place where we see the word that identifies to us that we should honor God with our first fruits and our, all of our substance, the first fruits of our increase. That's the tithe, the tenth. And nobody starts off with tithing because they can afford it. And it's something else that we teach our children to do. But if even though we teach our children to pay tithes or to bring the tithes under the storehouse, it's only after the, our children come into a personal, personal relationship with God that it takes hold. There's just not many people that tithe just because they were told to by their parents taught according to their parents and do it on their own it's something because it is a matter of honoring God it's something that our children have to experience and learn for themselves or else it'll just be a, a dead ritual like it had become with the Pharisees who Jesus called hypocrites We really don't have any record of Isaac tithing. We have one instance with Jacob after he stole his brother's birthright. After he left all of Abraham's possessions behind and went to find his own way. He had a dream in a certain place that showed that it was a place where the heavens were open and angels ascending and descending from heaven to this, that place where he was at. And he makes a vow before God that if God will bring him back to his father's house in safety and in abundance, he will pay tithes or bring tithes unto God at that point. There's no indication that he's leaving in faith. Instead, he's leaving in fear, fearful of what his brother will do. 
because he stole his father's blessing and the birthright. And so Jacob's tithe comes as a result of all the things that take place over a period of 14 years. And the Bible doesn't even tell us whether or not he makes good on his promise after he returns. But I want you to see it from Abraham's position. Abraham gave tithes of all unto Melchizedek. He does so because of his desire to honor God. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after these things, in other words, the result of these things come into his life. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That, that phrase, exceeding great reward, exceeding means vehemently. The great reward means increasing, and the word reward means payment. Folks, God gave Abraham a promise that basically said, don't worry about that money that you gave when you paid your tithes or gave the tithes to to Melchizedek. God gives him a personal, Matthew 3.10. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. It says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven, and pour out upon you a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. That's what Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 means. It means God is telling him, because you honored me with your substance, because you honored me through the tithes, you don't ever have to worry about whether or not I'll bring you back into even greater wealth. And as I said, that word exceeding means vehemently. It's as if there's a a powerful force that's working on our behalf in this earth to overcome the obstacles, the hindrances, and the spirit of the world which is controlled by Satan that would keep us from being richly provided for. Notice Abram's heart when God says to him, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm your protector and I'm the guarantee of your riches. Notice Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. His concern is not for the money. He doesn't even stop to talk about, now wait a minute, what's an exceeding great reward? His desire is for his family. The promise of children that God gave him when he was 75 years old. Folks, there are more things in life of greater importance than money. Now something else that riches will, riches meaning money, will lie to you about is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 6, it says, Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land a land of brooks of waters, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates 
a, la a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he giveth thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, that then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought, forth, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. Money will lie to you about how important it is. It wants you to think that it's the most important thing in life. But money will also lie to you about you. It will lie to you about riches having come from how smart you are or how skilled you are or how whatever you are. And it brought you into, and your skill, your importance, your wisdom brought you into the place of great wealth. But it's God that gives you the power to get wealth. It's God and only God that gives you power to get wealth. And notice in verse 18, it says to remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Notice that it says to establish his covenant. That's why the disciples are so blown away in Mark chapter 10. They realize that wealth and riches are a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And as children of Abraham, his disciples are blown away by God, by Jesus, referring to the rich young ruler, trusting in his riches. And it never tells us that they have understanding or gain the understanding to accept what Jesus is saying. But notice that Deuteronomy 8, 18 identifies for us that the covenant promise of wealth and riches that God made to, the, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob those things belong to us too. The covenant that God made with Abraham is in full, full force today just like it was when God spoke it to them. Now the Bible tells us about Hezekiah in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. The Bible tells us about how, the, actually it's chapter 29. It tells us about how Hezekiah, when he became king of Judah, began to undo things that the wicked kings before him had done. Israel and Judah are both operating contrary to the commandments of God. And when Hezekiah becomes king, he starts tearing down the idols 
that the Israelites were worshiping, he begins to d destroy the idolatry and the evil things that the kings before him brought to pass. And it tells us that he reinstituted the Passover. Now it has been hundreds of years since the last Passover was kept. And you could well understand that much of Israel's trouble was a result of the fact that they did not keep or follow the commandments of God. So in chapter 1, or chapter 30, verse 1, the second Chronicles, it says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. It tells us that Hezekiah is trying to encourage and get the people of Israel back on track following God's commandments. And it tells us that he wasn't able to keep the Passover in the right month. It's supposed to happen in the, the first month of the year. But he wasn't able to do it until the second month of the year because they had to cleanse the temple and purify the Levites, the priests, and so forth. And it tells us further on in chapter 30, verse 20, And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Healing came to the people because they kept the Passover, even though they didn't do it at the right time of year. But God overlooked the things that were done in error because of Hezekiah's prayer for the people. And it tells us that, that the people continued in worshiping God for seven days after the Passover was ended. In verse 26, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 26, it says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. They continue to worship God and to honor him. And it tells us in chapter 31, verse 1, Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were, were present went out to the cities of Judah and break the images into pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim also and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then the children of Israel returned every man to his possession unto their own cities. Verse 5, And as soon as the commandment came, forth, came abroad, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of corn, wine, and oil, and honey, and of all the increase of the field. And the tithe of all things brought they in abundantly. And concerning the children of Israel and Judah that dwelt in the cities of Judah, they also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep, and the tithing of holy things which were consecrated unto the Lord and laid them by heaps. It tells us that Solomon wound up building storehouses for the tithes of the people that were brought to the temple. And the thing I want you to see is when people's hearts were turned and got right with God, that's when the tithing began. Abraham, or Hezekiah rather, didn't require it. He didn't stand up before the people and say one more thing we need to do to make things right with God, and that is pay our tithes. Honor God with our substance. This is something that people did on their own, just like Abraham had done in Genesis chapter 14. When their hearts got right, tithing became something they enjoyed doing. Folks, that's what tithing is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a celebration of the God and the work of God in our lives to provide for us. I said earlier that 2020 changed the church. I don't think the statistics are the same in America, but in Europe, 
only 50% of the churches ever opened back up. In America, I think the percentage is a little larger than 50%, but it's not much. And one of the things that have happened, again, here in America, I'm not sure what the percentage of the things would be in other parts of the world. But overall, the church is operating at 50% of the resources and the finances that they did from before the pandemic and the lockdown. Now, the reason I'm saying this is not because we want to, in, to increase our tithes. As far as I'm concerned, your tithing is, is between you and God. I don't study the, the financial records to see who's tithing and who's not tithing. So the things I'm saying is not to try to get you to give more. That's a personal thing between you and the Lord. But one thing that I do want you to be aware of is that the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns and all the mandates and everything associated with that has undercut the church in a tremendous, tremendous way. And what that means is Christians at least half of them have allowed the pandemic to change the giving of their resources and the managing of their resources regarding God and the church in a tremendous, not tremendous good, but tremendously bad way. Now, there are people in positions of power, people operating, in the, for example, in the World Economic Forum that are looking to the pandemic lockdown as a model for things to come. One of the things that the Bible says we could expect in the last days, Jesus mentioned in Mark, uh, Matthew 24, is pestilences. The COVID-19 virus is not the last one that we're going to see. There will be other government attempts at overreach to limit the freedom of the people and to limit the religious beliefs of the people. So for those that allowed these things to stop them from tithing or giving or attending church, in Hebrews chapter 10, where Paul speaks by the Holy Ghost, he said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's a lot of what's happened over the pandemic. The Bible speaks to so many things, even to the point of forbidding to eat meat. I read an article this last week that Germany is passing certain laws having to do with climate change and appropriating, um, well, the guidelines from the United Nations. And that lockdown or that the new laws will limit 
beef production by 30%. So in the smallest detail, the Bible is giving us information so that we can identify the last days, these days that we're living in, and how to operate in those last days. For much of the church, the people allowed the difficulty of the pandemic to stop them from living according to God's system and instead put them back in under the control of the system of the world. This world system that Satan is operating and using and dominating. So folks, my purpose in talking about these things is not to get you to tithe. My purpose in talking about these things is to keep you in the place where you're controlled and governed by God's word and his commandments rather than the way of the world. So much of the church has just surrendered. So many Christians have just given up. And rather than looking to God as their source, are falling in line with the intended result of the government overreach, and that is to look for the government to solve their problems. Folks, the government is not going to solve your problems. If anything, they're going to make them worse. So when Israel found themselves in a place of difficulty, God gave them a solution. And that solution, as we mentioned before, is Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast your fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. God seems to be saying that you can be an evidence and proof to the world of his goodness and the truth of his word. And all the nations of the earth will recognize that there's something different about you and me. Where the rest of the world is going down, we can rise to the top. When the rest of the world is going without, we can have an abundance. An abundance is not just for us, but can be a help and an aid to them too. Folks, these are dangerous times, strength-reducing times, but you don't have to let it reduce your strength. Much of the church world will be swept under by the difficulties that are yet to come. But this is our year of Jubilee. This is our year to prove God's word to be true. Now when I say the year of Jubilee, I'm really not talking about a calendar year. However much longer we have before Jesus comes back, I believe that these principles and these truths will still be at work in us providing for us the power to get well to enable us to reach others and continue the work of God 
But whether or not we put ourselves in a position for God to make good in our lives, make his word good in our lives, that's up to us. It's up to your individual decision, your choice. You were created to have authority here on the earth. You were not created to be dominated or subjugated by the kingdoms of this world. Because God is our victory, because Jesus is our champion, the Bible tells us that his whole dying on the cross, the whole experience of his death on the cross was to redeem us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is three things, spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. And those are things that God created us by the new birth to rule and reign over. When our experience in the world gets worse, we have to respond in a completely different way. The attacks against our finances are designed to make us pull back and hold tight to what we have out of fear of not having more. But when things in the world gets tight, get, become tighter and tighter, that's the place where we need to give more and more. Because the word of God is true. Luke 6.38 Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with what measure you meet it shall be measured back to you again. Our giving will sustain us. Our tithing will increase us if we choose to follow God's law and operate under God's system instead of the world's system. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power we believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. It's up to us to choose to live according to God's system. I've made my choice. What about you? Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands to our Father the one who has made these exceeding great and precious promises, the one who has declared that he is our shield and our exceeding great reward. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your healing. We thank you for the life of God that's at work in us. We thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of your calling and the riches of the inheritance of your saints, the riches and glory of your inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Part of that power is the power to get well, Father. So we thank you for divine direction. We thank you for showing us the things to do that will put us over and bring us out on top. Jesus, you're our victory. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.
for seeing us through. We thank you for financial miracles. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. We love you. Have a great day and a great week.